back to War Machine. In this episode, we speak with Petra Carlson about radical theology, Thomas Altizer, imminence, icons, post-humanism, Foucault, Christ as machine, theological constructivism, etc., etc. It was a good time, and we took as our starting point a few of the short films Petra has been making and posting to her YouTube channel which sort of overlap with her recent manifesto available from Ritledge called Radical Theology and Avant-Garde Art. It's a good read. You'll find a link to that in the show notes as well as a few other things. And uh, yeah, I sort of like this format. Let us know what you think on Facebook at War Machine Podcast, on Twitter at War Machine Pod, and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Okay, here's Petra Carlson. When you jumped on, I almost didn't recognize you without your uh, your necklace that you always wear. Yeah, true. I felt I felt I almost needed to have it, but then I, you know, just been like, no <laughs> one will see me anyway because I I keep wearing that when I uh, lecture or. Uh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, just teach or whatever. It's, uh, I yeah, made that yeah. decision a couple of years ago to always wear the same outfit. How's that been going? Very well. It's, it's wonderful. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then I don't yeah. have to think about what to wear. <laughs> and it's also, uh, and I, yeah, I feel that it works. You know, people understand. Because in the beginning, it was both the kind of feminist statement and uh, mm-hmm. climate change statement that, you know, there's this expectation of, of women to wear different outfits and to, uh, well, not to wear the same dress twice and that kind of thing. And I realized I was once in, in the cafeteria of our school and I looked around and I saw like I had these like trashed jeans on, jeans on and my colleagues, they were wearing like really fancy dresses. And I thought, oh, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't really dress like I, I should probably uh, like a woman in this in this school. So. Um, uh, so that was kind of one one part of it, but the more important bit is the climate. Well, realizing the emissions from the clothing industry and yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good way, way to... of, of kind of talking through through perf- well performativity, I guess, rather than just saying things. Yeah, no, I like it. I mean, it's a good way to live into a sort of communist uh, utopia, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just let's start with the outfits. You know, we'll just wear the same thing every day. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll all be happy. <laughs> sure of it. Um, you just had a book published. I have it. Oh, yes, you did. Because I felt bad that I didn't send like the PDF to you. Yeah. Oh, I should I should have asked. <laughs> I should have asked, yeah. No, it's cool. But now I have it and it's yeah. great. I mean, I wasn't 
I wasn't really thrilled about paying $50 for, you know, a hundred, hundred page know, book, but I always feel bad about <laughs> but that's just, that's just Rutledge, you know, they're, they're the premier scholarship. So you should feel good about that. <laughs> yeah. My, my last one was even more expensive, but I'm not sure that it was better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I want, you know, I want to get into some of the stuff that's, that's in the book and, you know, some other things too. Um, yeah. But before we jump into that, you know, I'd like for our audience to get to know you a little bit. I mean, you've already said you live in Sweden. You've been there forever, I guess, or? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm born and raised. I've been in, uh, as a postdoc, I was in, in Nottingham for, for a while and I've been, uh, well, research stays in different places. I was at Drew University last uh, fall. Drew yeah. here in? Drew in the, in the, the States, yeah, in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah right, down, right down the street from uh, from where I live. Um, oh, yeah, how, <laughs> I didn't I didn't know. I wasn't invited. <laughs> so, what got you interested in uh, theology, anyway? Oh, what got me interested in theology? I think it's actually kind of a, as I guess it often is, is something inherited. I think I think it was in a way a struggle that my my parents uh, kind of did went through. They were brought up in a not charismatic but kind of semi-charismatic kind of environment, uh, and they did not want me to or my brother to to get to experience that same <laughs> the limitations of life, and so uh, and so we didn't really. But but there were a lot of uh, well, just in my childhood there was just this presence of of this whatever it is God and and. Uh, uh, religiosity that was important, but still also something troublesome and something that could potentially be like liberating or inhibiting, and and so I was really early on interested in those uh, in those questions, and uh, I had this idea that uh, I knew that it, that life could uh, you know end up feeling meaningless and completely po pointless, and then I thought if I will be dealing in my life with like the big questions, meaning of life, love, death, then it won't be meaningful, meaningless. I mean, <laughs> then, then I will, then, then I will kind of uh, be safe when it comes to meaning uh, and a sense of, well, just point in life, I guess. I'm not sure I, that was successful, but that was one, uh, at least a decision <laughs> time when I decided to go into theology. Um, I'm curious about the Swedish weather and how that impacts the sort of existential position of Swedish theologians, right? Because I, I can't really kind of put my finger on it, but it, it seems to me that there's a sort of connection, perhaps, between the geography and the climate and the general shape of theological thought there compared to the US or other parts of Europe. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I think that our thinking is always uh, material and, and very closely related to the material world that we are in in different ways. And to me, I was brought up uh, up north where there was like six months of winter uh, and darkness <laughs> for, for every year. Uh, and uh, of course, the sense of, uh, you know, when spring came, that was actually something uh, uh, that was the sense of life coming back every year, and it's a kind of Ingmar Bergman kind of country where, where you know, the, the soul is is often dark, and so you have to struggle with, with the sense of of meaning. Yeah, it, it does seem like uh, there's that C.S. Lewis quote from I think uh, the Lion Witch and the Wardrobe, where I can't remember the name of the the 
the witch or the queen or whatever you know the, the, just that line that's always winter but never christmas and it seems like here christmas was to find meaning in the existential questions i guess yeah in the perpetual winter maybe yeah 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 no something like that a yeah. gift that keeps on giving what c.s lewis existential <laughs> despair oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i'm in the i'm kind of in the, i'm in the pacific northwest so we have similar questions with all the rain up here right so oh, depression right. and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, grunge, grunge music and all that stuff you know Oh yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, it's interesting. True. I was just going to ask a, a question around the how ecclesial culture or growing up in the church, how that butts up with or overlaps with just kind of secular culture or just everyday life in Sweden. I think uh, those kind of analyses coming from a Europe or sorry, an American context where we didn't really have and still haven't had like a a post Christendom experience or a post or a death of an actual real death of God in a broader sense and part of our culture as opposed to maybe from the outside looking in in Europe I'm wondering if maybe how that was like growing up in the church maybe in Sweden and like and like how that influenced your interactions with you know non-church culture or whatever yeah no I was so odd being like a church going kid and we didn't go that very often you know it's not like we went every Sunday we just went like one once a month or so to make the grandparents happy I think but uh but still, you know, that was something that you would not say to anyone at school. And I find that in, in my ways, it's still like that. <laughs> my, my, one of my daughters, uh, we were in the car a couple of days ago and, and her friend said, do you know that my mom, she said when she was a kid, she actually prayed to God. No, get out of here. So <laughs> I was like, oh, but you know, if you don't have a cat to talk to, I think it's okay to talk to God. <laughs> I was like trying to find an argument uh, not to make that that other mom look stupid. But uh, no, that's definitely a, a different situation than you have, I think, in our country. We have gone through a, a proper secularization, and sometimes I f- think about Thomas Walteiser and his idea that you know uh, God. Uh, had to die for the second time, like in in the secularization, in order for us to to truly get the point of the incarnation. And and uh, I sense that at times in Sweden, I think, why am I a theologian in Sweden? If I just stop doing this, and if we just stop doing this, we could actually live the Walteserian kind of incarnation here, because we're, there are not that many who hold on to or talk about God in the public sphere or, or Christianity or so. So um, I was really odd as a, as a Christian when, uh, in my culture when I was a kid, or that was my experience anyway. But I did become a, a minister in the Church of Sweden, Lutheran Church. But then there were the people that I met in church were kind of ordinary secularized Swedes came into church uh, when they were going to get married or <laughs> something like that, and, and they didn't uh, have a faith of their own. Uh, but I just felt that every time they went into church, what the church room did to them was to make them feel insecure, wondering, like, should I have my hat on or should I, <laughs> yeah. should I wear this shirt or should I stand or sit or kneel? Or, uh, and so I just felt that there is something truly like suppressive and inhibiting in this in in whatever it is that we're doing in this room yeah or discipline disciplinatory yeah, discipline. right yeah. yeah so yeah the the invocation of altizer and uh preston started talking about the death of god and stuff like that i think maybe is a good uh segue into what we're gonna do today which is a little bit different 
than how we normally do things, right? We're going to sort of use a few of the, the short videos that you've made, which are really cool, by the way. I think they're great. I thought we would start with, uh, there's one on God and radical theology. Uh, I encountered radical theology through Thomas Altizer. There's a lot to say about him, but uh, what I just loved was his idea that God is an idol. I mean, the transcendent God that you're supposed to believe in as something other, something supernatural. That God is just a distraction away from what's truly holy, namely this life, this planet, these relationships and these plants. To all types, God died to underscore the incarnation. We didn't get it the first time when Jesus died, so God had to die again, and that was at the beginning of modern thought, causing the secularization. It was when God died in our ways of thinking and believing, thinking about truth and reality. Secularization was then nothing less than God's way of saying, don't look up, I'm not there, look down, be present just where you are and you'll find me. The supernatural God is not just a distraction away from what truly matters, though. Mary Daly, another key radical theologian, argued that, well, yes, some may say that we need to imagine a power that is other than this world in order to change it, a force that is truly free, liberated from any corruption or human will to power. But will anyone ever be able to imagine such a force without that force being somewhat similar to such free forces in this world? Will anyone ever be able to imagine a totally free and powerful being without that being somehow being modelled on what we know about free beings in this world, namely that they are male, white and heterosexual? In other words, a detached supernatural god is very likely to reinforce precisely those kind of norms and powers that we struggle to balance on this planet. In radical theology, when we do talk about God, we prefer to do so in terms of immanence. That's where the true mysteries are. Not in those man-created ideas and abstractions, but in the mysteries of things, bodies, relationships, organisms, the mysteries of this life. So you start there by mentioning Thomas Altizer. I mean, I know you've already said uh, something about how you got interested in theology, but specifically how you got interested in radical theology. And maybe that's something uh, you can say a little bit more about, because I think it's it's different things for, for different people. And there are different valences, there's different trajectories within radical theology. Not that we need to kind of get into a history lesson on all of that, but I'm sort of curious about like where in that tradition you locate yourself. Like for me, I'm, I'm not that everyone, anyone ever asks me, <laughs> but, I'd, but I'd want to claim the lineage of, you know, Winquist and Robbins and Crockett and those guys. I just think they're doing really interesting, constructive things like yourself. Um, and there's other people you know, working in that area too, certainly like Catherine Keller, Mary Jane Rubenstein, you know, sort of take radical theology as, you know, a method at least. 
but yeah, I don't know. What do you think about any of that? And where do you, where do you locate yourself? Yeah, I think to me, uh, I encountered radical theology through uh, Thomas Altizer. And at that time that pinpointed what I saw as, as a kind of key or nuclear in, in what I saw as a, the Christian thought structure and its ability to suppress and to be oppressive. And that was quite simply the idea that God, truth, is always somewhere else. Uh, and we are always below and where we are here, this world is always not perfect because it should be somewhere else. It should be closer to God and it should be uh, more illuminated or better. Or And and uh, according to, to a kind of Nietzschean analysis of that, that would just keep us in a re reactionary state and not in a state where we actually can act and where we can flourish and where we can be whatever we are. <laughs> and I think reading Thomas Altizer was, of course, I enjoyed that because it had those kind of openings towards towards a, a philosophical tradition that I, I was just into already, but also because it was so crazy and it was so bold <laughs> and it was nutty. And then I had said that I was going to write my dissertation on Thomas Altizer. And so I went to this conference in Scotland uh, and he was supposed to be there. And I was really, really nervous, young, young PhD student, and I was going to meet him and so, and he was of course happy to, you know, oh yes, you can interview me. And so we went to the pub and he got a few drinks. And then he told me about how he met Satan in the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back to my supervisors like, I'm not sure I can write about this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but just going deeper and deeper in, into that, I just felt it was just more liberating. I, I think he truly is a, a nutty genius, a crazy genius. Or was, but but yes, I had also read Winquist because he was the only Deleuzean kind of theologian that I had uh, encountered, and I had already started reading Deleuzean for Co. Uh, so that was kind of my background, and and then uh, yeah, to Robinson and Crockett and Bahini, and, and uh, so that's kind of where I feel at home. Are you also at this time in your, I want to say academic life, but also that's as somebody who's in slash gone through seminary and done academic work in theology and religion and stuff and philosophy. So just in terms of your thinking of theology, what it means to be a Christian, are you reading, you know, feminist texts at these points, you know, more, more critical theorists, uh, maybe a response to that, but also how that uh, ties into radical theology and then looking at like more liberatory politics within feminism and what kind of feminist theology could look like for you. I mean, are these kind of overlapping around the same time or is there is there kind of a thread you're drawing from maybe Altizer and, and further on in your readings of of radical theology that kind of draw draw into more uh, you know feminist theology or feminist politics and so on? For me, when I started uh, my PhD and and my scholarly life, people told me in the beginning that oh shouldn't you read uh, Dorothy Sölle? or you know they were kind of mentioning the female uh, authors and female theologians because well, you're a woman, shouldn't you be writing about these women? <laughs> and, and at that time I felt, no, I'm not going to write about these women. I want to write about Foucault and Deleuze and, and Thomas Altizer. And, and so my first um, uh, book, The Mysticism as Revolt, is really full of men, or it was for a long time anyway. Uh, but then of course I encountered um, many women scholars and they, they were already important to me. But for me, 
it was kind of was a part of a kind of feminist endeavor to get to choose, you know, who, right. who you engage with and, and not. But but then I think, well, encountering, for instance, Mary Daly and uh, of course Catherine Keller and well, I mean, it's to me, it's all part of the entire radical theology struggle is a power struggle. It's a, it's a struggle against power structures. And in that sense, it's a feminist project. Uh, for me, it deeply is. And, and a liberationist project in many ways, because it is, has to do with kind of breaking free of a, of a white heterosexual uh, neoliberal kind of worldview where, where, where transcendence is something that you cannot beat. It's interesting to think of like um, feminism in the certain ways how it could be formulated as being almost counter feminist. Like you're saying, like your advisors and even my question were assuming that, well, you're a woman, shouldn't you be reading woman authors, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so reading Deleuze or reading Altizer is in some sense, there's an assumption there that, oh, you're just, this isn't feminist or feminist enough, right? So it's really interesting because it, it was a helpful corrective, maybe in my assumptions, because I, I do I do like that, the, the base notion there of power structures and how we understand them, critique them and operate within them and how reading Deleuze as a woman could be a feminist uh, act right or as a scholar as a person because it's it's outside of the package of feminism or feminist theology right so do you have anything to follow up on that matt or any thoughts there yeah no i i think those are all good thoughts and it sort of takes a broader view i suppose of feminism as sort of fitting within uh, this sort of larger metaphysical critique of um the original and the copy and um and that sort of fits in with your general project in a, in a certain sense, too. One, one of the things that you mentioned as well is the way that radical theology is more materially oriented, I guess, is a way of saying it, right? And um, I don't take this to be exactly the same thing, but there's this discussion of imminence to kind of connect back to Altizer, which I think is important to keep thinking through. The more I keep thinking about this idea of imminence, or maybe it would be better to say what it means to think imminently, the more I realize just like how really difficult that is for, for different reasons. Um, one of those is that it's very often sort of contrasted with, and you know, rightfully so, I suppose, with transcendence, right? Transcendence as the other of imminence. Um, and when you do that, you're no longer thinking imminently. People do a similar thing with uh, like non-duality, right? They're like, oh, I'm, I'm non-dual. And of course, they're sort of contrasting that with, you know, different kinds of dualism. And there you have it again, right? But there's an, an ambivalence here with Altizer because this is the move he makes. And he does it in a very unique, a crazy kind of way, as you say, in this sort of metaphysical or mythical sort of uh, narrating of it in modernity, um, partly because of how deeply Hegelian he is, right? But it's hard to square. This is my question. It's hard to square with more of a Deleuzian form of thinking. And since I know that these are both figures who are important for you, how do you like not solve it necessarily? Because I don't think it's a it's a thing to be solved exactly. But how do you how do you think about it? Are these just incommensurate modes of thinking, or or, or what is it? Yeah, no. Um, at a first glance, it would seem as if they wouldn't go very well together. And I think Altais himself was also kind of slightly more open towards a Derridean path. Uh, but he did. Uh, but he did also react to my readings of, of Deleuze, and he felt that yes, this yeah, it actually fits. And this yeah, this is actually it makes sense to me. Uh, and 
And what I saw was that in his kind of crazy repetitions, you know, all Taizu, he just kept repeating the death of God until it made no sense anymore. And, and he kept repeating, you know, the kind of Hegelian dialectic and, and how it would dissolve and the coincidencia oppositorum, how the yes became the no and so on. And, and he did that until it hardly made any sense at all. It kind of, I, until it, it kind of brought him beyond rationality in any <laughs> in any in any useful sense of the word and also beyond dialectics in a sense uh, so that things actually started I felt when reading him appearing there you know he was so into a text that he couldn't he couldn't um, lift himself above the textual logic itself and to me that is <laughs> finally an imminent way of thinking and writing and acting uh, and by repetition making difference you know just repeating the same old crazy gospel over and over again until it just kind of starts dissolving itself and also dissolving the gospel that it kind of inverts so so to me uh, thinking imminently is i mean of course speaking in those terms is always about not speaking about something else so i mean you're always caught in some kind of dialectics or dualism in that way otherwise you don't make sense i don't think but but i do think that it does make a difference if you um if you see kind of the the transcendences of our language like the truth claims or like the statements positions that we kind of claim uh, as something real as referring to some outer reality or if they are performative and kind of creating something by appearing because then in that sense thinking imminently is also about not having to to correct yourself not having to be corrected because that's not what thinking is about thinking is about throwing out thoughts that can live and that can create new thoughts did that make sense at all or was i did i sound like all tyson now <laughs> I don't know. Are, are you seeing Satan right now, or having conversations with the devil? Yeah, I just passed by. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think there's a. I, I actually like that. I mean, reading Altizer can be a little bit like, okay, I, I think I've heard this before. You know, when you're reading the different books, right? But at the same time, it's like there's a certain sense of like chaotic, almost psychotic energy that that it kind of be missed from him, even when you see him on video. You know that I'm sure radiates in person that is just like kind of endearing yeah. too at the same time. Thinking within the text is what I'm hearing you say, Petra, like this kind of imminence is like a thinking within the text that produces novelties that maybe uh, at first sight or first reading that we're blind to perhaps, maybe that's the type of difference that comes through the repetition. So maybe like you're saying, Altizer's, uh, you know, th this constant repetition of the death of God um, perhaps produces uh, beyond the, the death of God that's that's inherent within it. Um, I think there's an interesting line to think there about like what can be, you know, produced through these kind of ritualistic repetitions. And then I get into thinking about like like theologies of liturgy or social social liturgies. Like, uh, I mean, going to work every day is a type of ritual or liturgy, right? But we need those rituals to kind of have that that anxiety, you know, kind of cathected, uh, I guess, to use a Freudian term. But the other the other line there, I think, is uh, with um, temporality too because it seems to be that there's a certain type of temporality that could be played with or, or toyed with, with within these repetitions Lucian or otherwise but you know Altizer he's repeating right these kind of death of God 
thoughts as he's reading through, you know, Dante and Joyce and, you know, uh, Finnegan's Wake and all this, all this stuff, right? Um, but at the same time, the, it seems like it's, it's a productive, so there's a, there's a kind of a spatiality, uh, but a temporal spatial, spatiality between these repetitions. So I'm wondering if there might be something to think about in terms of the theology of time or even just a, a concept of time within these repetitions and within this kind of a thinking within the text is imminent. Oh, I, I think, uh, I mean, if you see, if you start seeing the repetitions, whether liturgical or whether like toothbrushing or whatever, uh, as something that, oh, is that my, sorry about that. Uh, it's the devil. You didn't answer the door. No, but um, I think either you can view uh, liturgy and uh, also those kind of everyday things that you do as representational in the sense that you can start asking, oh, is this what I really should be doing? Who should I be? <laughs> or and like, do I actually mean this? Can I read the credo at, in church? Do I actually, you know, uh, do these words actually re refer to a reality that, that I believe in and so on? And that's one way of, of like uh, relating to, to reality and liturgy and everyday life. Uh, but then there is this uh, other way, which would be the kind of difference and repetition kind of imminent uh, approach, which would be, uh, more kind of seeing what what the repetitions do and what those kind of everyday things what what appears what what new things appears thanks to them being repetitious what is it that you see has become different in what way have you developed or become uh, older or whatever and, and in what, what what happens i mean in the church ritual it's not that they necessarily have to mean something but that they are trying to create a, a, a reality of some kind. And that that reality is always, you know, it's, it's, it's different every time. And I think also that uh, for Altizer, in one way, I just think he wanted to kind of keep repeating that gospel because he had put, it had given him so much attention the first time. Um, I think that's one side of it. But the other side of it is, I think that he, he was kind of ritualistic in that sense that uh, he, uh, he wanted to perform his truth and in order to make it kind of happen. And I guess that also relates to the temporality because then whatever is created is created in, in, in the moment. And it's not that it refers to a kind of first or a kind of first truth or, or uh, what it was supposed to be, or, but it is something that it, it's, it's a time and an experience that is constantly new because it's, it's uh, created. Yeah, that yeah. It's, it's that kind of, I think, habituation can be mundane, right, where you're trying to fit into a, a certain form of socialization that uh, that precedes you, whereas I think your, your, your contrast and thoughts there are, how do these uh, habituated practices uh, generate novelty, like, and how can that, how can we be more attuned to seeing those, those creations out of kind of these charismatic proclamations, right? So, for instance, within, like, uh, the church, like, when we're talking about reading creeds that we may not have any kind of affective or cognitive like uh, adherence to, right? Because we don't necessarily affirm them as they were maybe previously, previously meant to be affirmed. But what, what, new, what, what new things can come out of keeping the Nicene Creed, for instance, or the Apostles' Creed and affirming them in a liturgy or, you know, the Eucharist, right? And you know, talking about this kind of, this remembrance, but also it's a, every time we're remembering it, we're doing it for a, a new time, right? So it's a brand new creative possibility. But so I think that's really 
interesting this generative temporality i guess and i think also uh, because the next step and what is always close at, close at hand then is to also to start kind of creating the new and to adding like kind of new new performances and new new liturgies in, in the sense of new habits uh, into that because if if you if you're not uh, just stuck in thinking what what it ought to be or or what it's uh, uh, you know what it's supposed to represent but uh, this is part of something that we create every day okay so we can, then we can start creating new rich new rituals new new ways of living and being and and, mm. and kind of add take part in that take active part in that kind of performance or reality no it's good i mean it's sort of a shift from the uh visual to well you talk about the haptic but also there's a sort of listening that i think what you're describing there in, entails and that maybe gets into the second video that we're gonna sort of pivot off of which is the um icons in the post-human god some russian medieval icons really do look odd with frontal and profile aspects of the same object depicted alongside each other to later western viewers this is generally perceived as a distorted use of perspective. Like I said, it just looks odd. Many have tried to explain this phenomenon, but Klimena Antonova argues that a specific Russian Orthodox lens is needed to understand it. And I'd say her interpretation is not only convincing, it even opens for nothing less than a post-human perspective of icons, even a post-human understanding of God. Listen to this. The reason why these icons look so odd to Western viewers is that according to, to Western post-Renaissance logic, reality begins with a viewing subject. The linear three-dimensional perspective that we're so used to in images assumes a viewing subject as the key point of reference to reality. And if that key point of reference isn't there, we simply don't get it. It's not reality as we know it. The answer is all there in, in Orthodox theology. Simply, God in Orthodox theology is understood as a being who exists beyond time and beyond space and who therefore has no point of view, which is why from God's point of view all aspects of an object in our world would be perceived simultaneously. I'd say these uh, icons demand of us as viewers that we enter into a post-human point of view, where the world is not viewed from a singular viewpoint, but from many viewpoints simultaneously, or perhaps even, as Fabian Hefemiel argues, seen from within as a place of presence. Not as an optic vision, but as a haptic hands-on presence. Not as something to be viewed at a distance, but something to be felt in its immediacy as a complex and mysterious presence of God's incarnation. The icon is always iconoclastic, Hefemel writes, since it destroys from within our idea of an image as something to be viewed from without, from the human point of view. It trains us in viewing the world as the post-humans we have to become. Okay, let's take this one step further. Because if a multiplicity of mishmash presences is reasonable from God's perspective, well, then the divine logic truly is odd. Nothing like anything we've encountered in this world. Or, well, I guess it could be something closer to the non-anthropocentric, closer to the animalistic kind of presence in the now. Memories, hopes, instincts and senses all at once. 
God then, in this perspective, is truly post-human. Yeah, so you had some really uh, interesting things to say there about perspective and how, how a certain type of perspective sort of centers the subject um, understood as, you know, like an individuated, uh, stable, grounded subject. And then, you know, you didn't say this, I, I, I don't think, but then how you can understand how um, representing multiple perspectives, even if it's done kind of along uh, one, a single surface or along a certain, uh, along a plane, right? How that can be understood as something closer to a, a God's eye uh, perspective, right? Which one could argue is the view from everywhere is uh, is a view from nowhere, right? And it's still it's still representational. Uh, anyway, on the last point that you make about this kind of like omni perspectivalism, right, or omnipresencing of God, right? Even though you frame that as uh, uh, in posthumanist terms, to my ear, it sort of sounds very uh, orthodox in a way, and yet at the same time. So I watched this a couple of times because I, I almost missed this the first time through, but I think I hear you invoking a certain kind of animism. I mean, you sort of make reference to animality and maybe I'm sort of misinterpreting what you were saying there, but I, am I getting that right or? No, no, that's exactly the next step there because uh, to me, this all started when I, I started uh, going deeper into Russian art, which is odd that I ended up there, but it was really, it was really because of, uh, uh, well, I think Foucault wrote something about Kandinsky and then I went into Russian art and then I uh, encountered the Russian avant-garde pre-revolution thinkers and their inspiration from the Orthodox tradition. And at first I, I was kind of certain that I was going to, to if, if I was going to discuss uh, the Orthodox icon tradition in my work, that would be a definite kind of taking some bits and leaving others, which I guess uh, I do, definitely, I, I do. But but now I've also gotten to know the orthodox way of thinking in a way, and I, I kind of realized that that what the uh, pre-revolution artists in Russia brought from, from the icon tradition, they also trained as icon painters and so, and that was partly precisely the perspective uh, which to me now, when you know, when I see a very classical kind of Western painting, like the horizontal, uh, the horizon, and you know, you're thinking you're expected to view that reality. If you depict reality as it is, it's viewed from one person's point of view, and that's kind of yeah, okay, I recognize that. That's a tree. That's what what a tree looks like to me. Because when I stand in front of a tree, it looks like that. Okay, so that's reality. But what they did then was to. Uh, try to uh, picture reality as from uh, everywhere, that is from a God point of view, which to, which to them uh, was of course something beyond uh, time and beyond space. And and I thought at first, well, well, this is just reinforcing some kind of transcendent, absent kind of viewpoint. But then I realized, yeah, but what is this absent kind of viewpoint if it is actually kind of present just everywhere and if when they're trying to like paint a tree they don't usually paint trees but anyway if they would uh, it would be completely you know distorted because it would be seen from every angle at once and like every leaf upside down and inside out and in a sense yeah well that's reality isn't it <laughs> but it doesn't make sense from a human point of view but then what is a human point of view we're just here for like a 
you know, second in, in relation to the millions of years that, that Earth has been around. And so realities from a, from a single thinking subject, that's like nothing. And if, if you take that part of the orthodox way of thinking and the orthodox kind of God uh, notion, uh, then of course, yeah, you can start thinking that, yeah, well, what, what makes my view of the world more true than my cats or than a bug, you know? And then we, we pretty soon end up with a sense of reality that is uh, where, where, where humans are not the center anymore. Uh, and what God then is, I don't know, honestly, because it just doesn't, God doesn't make any sense if God has completely dissolved in that sense. And, and uh, yeah, so, so in the end, I, I, I was just kind of really, inspired i guess uh, by the orthodox thinkers and it, it does seem that if god's perspective is all perspectives right like all, at once it, within the imminent frame you can kind of uh kind of twist that that notion of the all perspective is actually just god is everybody's perspective combined right like if you want to immunitize it saying like the cat's perspective of reality plus my perspective plus your perspective plus matt's plus anything we can call sentient creatures perspective of reality combined together in some you know cosmic mismatch uh, uh yeah, exactly. and it's just chaotic right. and then there is yeah. really no god i mean just god right. doesn't make sense yeah so, right. so it's really no in the end it's no point in talking about god because god is just everything and, and everywhere yeah i think this is when i uh, sort of speculate metaphysically that I have this idea of the insane God and um, <laughs> the reason why he had to different or she or whatever it, if you know, if you want to kind of take a mythic view, had to differentiate is because it would be insane to hold all that together. Right. <laughs> and so God is actually insane. And the only way that God gains sanity is through uh, infinite differentiation. Yeah, exactly. I, uh, Foucault has a, a, a beautiful, he, write, or he doesn't write about the insanity of God, but to me, that's kind of what comes out of it. And when he writes about the Borges uh, library, where he describes language as a library where every book that has ever been written or that we ever thought about writing, that every child ever wrote, and that, you know, every, every book, like the surface of language, we can think about every word that has ever been printed like on Facebook or wherever, <laughs> that in its totality, that is language, okay. Then grammar has no kind of way of, of controlling that and, and we don't have any way of controlling that. It's just chaotic. So what language is in, in Foucault's uh, reasoning there through Borges is, well, it's just chaotic and it's stupid also finally because it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so if you're kind, kind of looking for to understand what language is or what the true or proper way of using it would be, yeah, well, you can do that, but it's not the real, like, because that's not how language appears to us. And it's a, yeah, it's a similar thought to your insane God there, Matthew. It's interesting, too, because it's a helpful advancement on Feuerbach's notion of that theology is, is kind of a reified anthropology, right? But it's a move beyond that. Well, okay, so if, if theology is anthropology, but if we're also constructing the anthropos as being post-anthropos or post-human, what would theology then look like after that? And I think the insane God is a helpful, a helpful way to think about that because, I mean, Matt said it, right? And that's, uh, I immediately went to Pennywise from Stephen King's novel, It. And so I'm like, okay, that's, 
So, and so then I started connecting like, okay, there's an interesting pantheism here. And then mm-hmm. uh, Mary Jane Rubinstein popped into my head with her recent text on pantheologies, right? Where you have this kind of- The, the monstrous. The monstrous, right? Yeah. And then you have, you know, the invoking of Pan and kind of these phonic notions, these mythological creatures and talking about the plurality of, of God within this kind of pantheistic framework. It's interesting too, because it, it fleshes out in- creating worlds here, politics, social worlds, normative structures in a plurality too, where you no longer have the kind of one grammar as, as Joseph would say, right? You no longer have that one logic, that one voice that, mm. you know, rules us all kind of, um, uh, sorry, my Tolkien reference there, but like, you know, th- there's not, it's a, it's an infinite play of, of multiplicity within the kind of the imminent frame and that people play the kind of, uh, the cultural transcendence, you know, to make America great again as kind of a, a return to the, the voice of the one over the many. But it's a, it's a hearkening back to, it's, it's a different type of ghost that haunts the reality of, of the plurality that we live in, right? It's a, it's a different type of specter that haunts us, right? It's not a Marxist specter. It's a, it's a return to a world that is dead. Um, it's the return of the dead God, but not, a, but not in a resurrection, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a nostalgia and we have a lot of nostalgia and, and at least in America, there's, a, there's, you know, return to nostalgia is the kind of, it's not history, but it's, it's uh, this looking back on two or three decades beforehand culturally and reifying like old TV shows, but like putting them like, you know, in new seasons and, and you know, new, we have, you know, infinite reruns of new movies that, you know, or comic books or things that have been made. New denominations. Know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's kind of like, again, I, I really like this, this comment that Barry Taylor has made multiple times about how, you know, the, the best way to uh, um, honor your grandfather is not to wear your grandfather's hat, but to have your own child, right? Where you're, it's actually a, the generation of something new that's never happened before. It's not nostalgically bringing old culture or old aesthetics into the present and like saying, you know, with this kind of, um, I, I don't know, this kind of consumeristic or nostalgic notions of of coolness but you're actually creating something new that's never existed before and that can generate its own form of life just my random thoughts oh yeah it does and and i i mean one one important read for me was of course uh, the order of things where he uh, where where he ends up well it was beginning like noting how important God is to our way of knowing and our way of organizing the world. And then uh, the subject takes kind of God's place, but then there are also these, this kind of space opening up beyond the death of the subject. And, uh, and it's really throughout his book where he keeps writing about how humanity is trying to organize things in order to make knowledge, because then you have to organize, you have to order things and there is no order. Uh, but you have to put them in some kind of order in order for us to have knowledge. Uh, but then kind of what, what you see there opening up beyond the death of the subject is, of course, the disorder of things. That kind of just like this mystery of things that kind of, well, is just able to flourish and to take really the, the right place in our, in our reality that, yeah, well, God couldn't control it. We couldn't control it. So it's time to listen to things, the material things. And it's really this both chaotic, but also, I guess, in a sense, beautiful uh, world appearing. <laughs> well, it's a type of madness that haunts that, <laughs> that form of subjectivity or, or rationality, right? And Foucault does a lot of work on, you know, his dissertation, I think it was on madness yep. and this idea of rationality and, and kind of that, the, the, the what, what is it? The, the ship of fools kind of imagery, right? 
where yep. they're almost like a, it's a type of divine madness, I guess. And my, yeah, exactly. And my uh, university, where I did my PhD, did not accept his dissertation because it wasn't proper. I think that's a good place to shift over into the uh, the last video that we'll discuss and see where it goes. One funny thing about Jesus is that everyone recognizes him. Even in really, really old paintings, you immediately see who it is. He doesn't need to like carry an apple, a symbol, or a lion by his side for us to recognize him. Uh, it's the actual face that you recognize. And this is, in fact, unique with uh, Jesus as an historical figure and in the history of art. Uh, it's unique that you actually recognize the face. The slim face, the almond-shaped eyes, the high cheekbones. Gilles Deleuze and Felice Guattari, they argue uh, that this has philosophical implications. The face of Christ, they say, is the first face that, that we as a culture learn to recognize. And it was the actual face, the actual man himself, who was important. That is who we learn to recognize as the image of man. And that image, it was in fact male and it was white. The face of Christ, they argue, is the face with which we compare all other faces. It has become the face of faces and it embodies goodness, whiteness and maleness inseparably. It is the face of the white man himself. It doesn't only instigate this particular ideal, but it grounds the very ideal itself, the very notion of a correlate and, a, and its deviation. Aha, so uh, that's a man. Ah, oh, no, that's a woman. Aha, it's neither a woman nor a man. Ah, oh, then it must be a transvestite. The either or Deleuze and Guattari write easily falls into judgment. The face grounds identity and begets a yes or no, thus forming a ground on which to judge. Instead of the notion of the face, uh, Gilles Deleuze and uh, Guattari, they use the notion of the machine. Because a machine does not indicate an origin or a singular identity. A machine consists of many, part, it, many parts. It's, uh, uh, it's formed, made out of a multiplicity of uh, components, just like we are, I guess. What if we were to think about Christ as a machine rather than a face. A live and die, die and live again machine reoccurring through history in all different places, different times, different interpretations, different texts and paintings. Not a one identity that we can discover or recover, but something that is an ongoing construction on the face of the earth, on the face of our knowledge, an ongoing construction that we are also part of and that also reconstructs us and our faith constantly. What if Christ is a Donna Harawayan cyborg made up of many parts, also ready to transform? If so, maybe that 
Christ machine is calling us to be likewise, transform us, ready to change our lives, lifestyle when the earth is calling, uh, prepared to rethink the basis of our faith and of Christianity. The notion of Christ as machine is in fact not new to Christian theology. Long before the first painting of Christ was ever painted, there is this uh, writing on the wall, a Christian sign. The letters of Ichtis brought together into one wheel that we can put in motion. Of the three, I think this is the one that um, I suspect might be the most difficult to, to track with, the Christ as machine. I thought, because I thought the icon one was really, was oh. that default. It's, I suppose it's radically subjective, right? Maybe there was things I, in that I, I missed, but I, in, in this one, at least, I felt there was a sort of density where you're trying to make several moves at once. And, you know, some of the things are easy to miss, right? And so I think it may be helpful if you could unpack this a little bit for us, right? There's this theological thread, there's the technological thread, the constructivism thread, which we haven't talked too much about. You sort of hinted at it. And then there's the foreclosing of the original uh, of, of Eden, of the, of the Edenic, right? There's no originals, all we have are copies. And then I guess there's a sort of question of salience, right? Of or I really liked this word that you mentioned several times in the avant-garde book of uh, expediency, right? And to me, I took that to be like the watchword for for this project. I don't know if that's right, but maybe you can hold a, hold our hands a little bit and just uh, walk us through your thinking here uh, on the crisis machine. Yeah, the crisis machine. Uh, I also hear now when you are kind of opening up it up to me that it truly is a machine because it's put together by, by many different pieces and that I, I and I don't uh, of course explain all of that in that film. I, um, it's partly Donna Haraway, it's uh, Gilles Deleuze uh, and it's of course a bit of uh, Christian sources as well and then the Russian constructivists, Walter Benjamin also I think. And because what I encountered reading Deleuze and uh, Donna Haraway uh, was the Deleuze in critique of the face of Christ, uh, which is again uh, putting humanity at the center of reality and putting a white heter heterosexual good looking man at the center of reality. Presumably heterosexual. Yeah, we don't know that, of course. He probably, well, he probably wasn't, but. Uh, just the, the fact that his face is something that you always recognize. And when they instead uh, suggest the machine, I know that many people react when, because I do at times try to, to put the machine concept forward and people say, oh, but isn't that kind of impersonal and cold and that's not, the machine doesn't have emotions and, and so on. Uh, but the point in doing that for me is, is twofold. One, that is because when we think about ourselves as machines rather than subjects, then we are also open to the fact that we are created through different events in our lives, but also like this Petra, the Matthew Preston Petra machine. I mean, we are not who we are now anywhere else, but in this moment, I mean, partly of course, but there is something appearing here and being created that is a, a machine of its own in a sense. 
And so, and I, in order to be the one who I am right now, I need the two of you. So we need each other in order to be who we are at this moment. And, to be, and the machine image enables us to be open to that. But it also uh, enables us to be open to the fact that, like now in, in the COVID situation, we are very much in need of our you know, uh, iPhones and computers and stuff. We are technological creatures and, and human beings have been for as long as we can remember almost. You know, we, we, have needed, we need things. And I find that so easily both in, uh, in uh, environmental uh, thinking and in other kinds of critique against modern society, you put up against uh, modernity or postmodern world, you put up kind of natural way of being or nature, the natural person, oh, I should be more in the forest, you know, kind of thinking that there is a kind of original me, there is this original self that we should find our ways back to. And also then easily connected with that is that, yeah, well, women are this way, men are that way, and uh, we shouldn't love people of our own sex and so on. So uh, what I find that both Donna Haraway and Gilles Deleuze and Guattari find in the machine image is, well, breaking away from those kind of norms that, that are also in our own ways of thinking about what is natural and what is given. And it's also, I think, a way of approaching reality uh, in a way that is uh, just embracing the fact that we are dependent upon things and each other. And we are deeply relational in that way, also relational in relation to our iPhone, <laughs> whether we like it or not. But the fact that we do consist of several different parts also makes us flexible and able to change. And I think we will need to change because we have a climate uh, that is changing and we need to change both with it and in order to, to make it uh, less uh, damaging. And there's just so much there. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, good stuff. I, I wonder, I'll just go with this. I wonder if you have, if, uh, in terms of bridging that gap between talking about Christ as machine or the machine at Christ and kind of the reactions that you get from your audiences, that's too aloof, that's too far away from us. We, we can't touch that. It feels cold and dead and abstract, right? Uh, thinking of a biological machine, maybe like as humanity or the, a, a type of anthropos or human, humanization, uh, thinking of our bodies as our machines, right? They're, they're a biological machine. Trees are a biological machine. Plants, different other forms of animal species are biological in the sense that we have, you know, these cellular mechanisms, right, that are working inside of us that are happening. I, I, I don't know how to quantify it, but like, you know, there's a, there's a lot about my my life going on right now, just biologically in my body that's going on autonomically without my saying yes or no, the subject, right? The, the on, off, the yes, the no, the sovereignty of the subject. I'm wondering if maybe there might be a helpful bridge because when you talk about a biological machine, I think for me anyways, they, oh, it kind of centers me back in my immediate breathing, kind of sweating, being warm, cold, feeling the texture of my clothing on my skin, presencing, right? I'm just kind of thinking a lot of how to bridge that gap between the crisis, the machinic, and, and that kind of like subjectivity of, there's a certain sort of familiarity with subjectivity. And again, it's part of the discourse, what we're, what we're habituated to. Again, there's just so much there. I think um, I, what I got from the crisis, the machine is that Again, it kind of ties in with the the orthodox iconography that you were doing in the last video we talked about, where you have this multi-perspectivalism, the Christ as machine, therefore becomes the mini Christ, Christ is plural. The, there are Christs, not Christ. I'm wondering if there's anything that distinguishes in this pluralistic 
uh, Christology or Christologies, the Christ from, let's say, even like a Deleuze, you know, or a, or a Petra. If there's no original in that sense, and all we have are copies, is there any kind of information uh, that transfers, uh, that distinguishes in some, you know, again, relational, open-ended in a way that can, can distinguish us from each other? Because I would say that even though in this micro-ontology that we're inhabiting now, the three of us conversing, there's a distinguishing factor that says that this is who we are right now that distinguishes us relationally from other conversations going on, right? So I, I guess I'm just wondering how you would think about the plurality of, of the Christs um, in relationship to this kind of uh, interesting dialectic of the, the original and the copies. And I mean, what do you think about that? I, I don't think that there is much that differs Christ from any other phenomena in this world, mm. although, uh, what the Christ, uh, because the Christ as machine to me is the Christ as a kind of assemblage. If if you view the surface of Christ as how Christ appears in this world, it's pluralistic and it's well, you know, it's overwhelmingly diverse and and uh, just all the different ways in which Christ is claimed and how people interpret and and people used to well, to motivate killing or used to to motivate coming out of the you know the closet or or stepping into the whatever you know uh, and all of that taken together again it's like chaotic <laughs> but viewing that kind of machinery through history as a kind of just the die and live again machine kind of the the repetitions of that story and all the different things it can do, it's not different from any other stories, but it's such a powerful story. And it's a story that does so much. And especially the fact that we claim that it does have an origin and that even you know, the most progressive churches and preachers claim that they know the origin and the most conservative, they, they claim that they have the origin. And right. I don't think that's a solution. I think right. the solution is rather to see what this Christ figure kind of does. Uh, and it it does a lot of bad things and a lot of good things, and we can add to the good things it does, but not yeah, by yeah. claiming that I know what God really, you know, God was really deep down, uh, uh, whatever. And so, uh, so the crisis machine uh, is a way of pointing to to the fact that that we have no right to claim uh, the origins of Christ, uh, and of course, in a similar manner than. Uh, we don't have, in a simple sense, any origins ourselves. Yeah. Like when you ask me, how did you start? Why did you go into theology? There are so many different ways, uh, so many different origins, and I could explain that in so many different ways. Yeah, I like that. And I think the an imminent critique does not preclude necessarily representations, but it sort of it precludes the need for the, the sort of game of representations that you're talking about, right? The sort of realist adoption of, you know, some primordial ground or, you know, sort of a return to the, to the one. And the, the way that gets cashed out, as I take it, is this kind of a certain kind of pragmatism, which I think is one of the things that I find attractive about radical theology in general. It's not necessarily trying to adjudicate, but trying to like critically interrogate, but for a purpose, right? And, and this gets the idea of theology as a kind of activism, which gets to the constructivism. I guess, I guess an overlay of that ontologically is the, the idea of assemblage, but really the, it's the artistic mode of production 
that you want to kind of bring into theology that I find most um, enlivening and more uh, potentially uh, liberatory. Yeah, I don't know if there's a question there, but maybe you can lean into the constructivist aspect a little bit more for us and, and help us with what you're getting at there. Yeah, yes, thank you. I, the constructivist art movement in, in Russia, there was one in Europe as well, they were really non-representational in the sense that they had they came from the leaving behind of of the figurative art. They came from from a kind of setting where artists have started to wonder: Can you possibly say something true about reality? Can I, I paint a tree and it will be the tree? No, I can't. So let's you know let's leave uh, the attempt at, at being figurative. Let's start creating realities on the canvas instead. Uh, so that move had been made. And then the constructivists, they were also starting to wonder, yes, but am I an artist? And can I control what is being created on the canvas? When does creation start? Like, does it start in the material, when I meet the material, like when my hand touches something, when I start writing a book, is it like my thinking self that controls the keyboard or does the keyboard control my thinking? And where, like, where does the process start? So am I an artist? No, they said, they did not want to call themselves artists because an artist would be like a creator, a designer, and they didn't believe in that. They wanted to see themselves as constructors, like mechanics, kind of taking part in something that was already going on. So it's not like we're completely passive, we can do things, but it's not like we can create the new, but we can, const we can construct and reconstruct. And, and if we view reality that way, there is nothing to, to be revealed. There is nothing to be, we won't find a truth no matter how much we dig, but we can be constructors and part of constructing. And bringing that idea into theology, of course, makes me when I start reading, well, a text or, you know, interpreting the Bible or whatever, uh, I'm not there to find out what it's truly all about, but I can be there as a kind of mechanic. And that's what I think that we as theologians do. We put things together and then something new appears. And not in order to have the last say, but in order to, to be part of a kind of series of constructions. And, and to me, that, that does make a difference in, in how I approach uh, theology and I guess the Christian tradition and the Christian way of thinking and living. It does seem that there's a, I don't know if it negates, maybe negates, but at least brackets this kind of cosmic theology and replaces it with like a more pragmatic micro theology where each particular project might have like a, an end goal, like your, your work on avant-garde art and your work on Foucault and, and Deleuze might have like a particular end in mind, but it's not the, the end, right? It's not, it's not an eschatological uh, with a capital E end. Like this is the truth that we all must now bow down to. It's more of like, well, this is interesting. Let's see what this produces, right? Like I, I found these thoughts helpful and generative in my spirit or, or my thinking or my life. What do you think? You know, and then there's actually an, an opening to reflection and a space of the other and other lowercase o, oh, not the big other, or like or a larger construction of otherness, but for other people to participate in this relational creativity. And that kind of fits in with your whole project of the kind of this ontological generativity, I think is in a sense, it's an imminent generativity, right? And it's it's not about necessarily controlling the flows, but maybe 
maybe writing the flows that are already creating us, right? Like the keyboard is calling out to us, the pen is calling out to us, that text over there, that 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 painting is creating us as much as we're creating it. And I just find that helpful because it's it's uh, it's more enlivening because it, it gets away from this, again, these old stodgy notions of sovereignty and it creates this, uh, again, a new subjectivity and, and just kind of all, all these thoughts are colliding that we've talked about, you know, and this kind of these kind of fabric and threads. Um, yeah, that's what I was saying in, about this idea. It's very the yeah. Christ as machine is extremely dense. There's yeah, it's just like well, a lot yeah, of. And I realized that when you uh, when you unpacked it, that it is uh, because it wasn't to me at, at first, but that was just because I was so into it. I mean, that's always. <laughs> but, well, even uh, the, the, yeah, the image you used of the the wheel, right? Of that that kind of the 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 painting of Christ as this kind of wheel with these spokes, but like how you described it as like the the wheel with the spokes is actually like all of the letters of the ichthus like combined. So you have this, this, this again, this plurality or uh, multiplicity yeah. creating the the one that's also a, that's a will, so it moves things right too. So there's like a type of dynamism. That was the other thing. Yeah, there's like you don't invoke process theology, but certainly that's one of the things that I think was implicit in this. This is a kind of certain kind of process theology. You know, not necessarily Whiteheady, and nothing against Whitehead, of course. But <laughs> um, yeah, it is. I mean, it's so close to process theology, and and I feel so. You know, I I feel so close to that, and and I I just feel that that does so much good. I think that the difference in my approach is that. I don't want to go along with the claims. I was a bit hesitant when using the wheel, in fact, just because whenever you try to to claim something theologically, you need to say that it's a first. That from the beginning, it was really, you know, it was really, the crisis machine was there before, you know, even crisis as faith. So, and that's a kind of theological way of arguing and motivating things that I think is is deeply troublesome in a way. And I think that if you say, if you claim a process way of thinking on basis that reality, that's what it is deep down. I think that then you you risk ending up in a similar thought structure as the one you try to leave behind, namely mm -hmm. that you have seen the truth and, and uh, you can start spreading it. But, but I found a constructivist way of thinking is more well, pragmatic, but also it has to do with the epistemological level. Like that is what we can know, what we can know and what we can, what we encounter in this world, that is finally chaotic. And, and we can't say anything certain, uh, and, but, but we can take part and, and we can uh, be mechanics and co-creators in that sense, not by claiming that we know that it's all processed deep down, but simply that as it appears to us, that's the way it is. And, and to me, uh, I have also had, you know, the Pussy Riot movement and their action in Christ uh, the Savior Cathedral in Moscow in, in 2012 was a kind of a revelation to me in the sense that uh, I realized that these are political theologians wanting to do performative theology, kind of adding, knowing that, no, we, we won't claim that this is, what you know, Christ meant, or this is what Christ, you know, how Christ wanted us to do liturgy. But we can also do liturgy this way, and we can add by spreading these images, and then we will start changing the surface of Christianity, and that will change Christianity. So the the Pussy Riot, they are the perfect constructors, constructivist theologians uh, to me. In that well, they're kind of a insurrectionary Marian theology there, maybe in a creative way, right, where you have 
um, maybe it's invoking the feminine in this kind of maybe a Marian kind of uh, insurrectionary political theology, perhaps. I don't yeah, know. The, yeah, and, I mean, they used consciously a, a, a liturgy that was there in the Orthodox tradition, but they twisted mm -hmm. it and they they kind of used it as, as kind of mechanics, uh, constructing something new. Yeah, and I think, again, like this concept of we, all we have are copies, right? But if there is no original, then we don't even have copies. We just have everything is an original, right? But everything is an original of its own making. But of course, within like, you know, discursive and conversational trends. And I do think that maybe Whitehead falls into this and in in that kind of process theology falls into a more mo a modern move of a beatific vision, right? Where, ah, oh, we've seen the true light. It's not what, you know, the medievals or this kind of, this pre-modern move was, but it's actually this, this is the truth. The enlightenment is the, the kind of the correct form or methodology, right? Whereas I think the Deleuzian or postmodern move is to say that, what, what you were saying, right? It's to say that it, it seems to be this way at this, and we can talk about it in this kind of productive generative sense, but again, there's more of a playfulness to it. There's more of a, a kind of a, a holy irreverence in a sense. I don't know. You know oh, yeah, exactly. that, but... and, that's, and that's why the playfulness and experimentality is so important to me, because I don't think that we can, we'll never get down to a point where we can show that the world is, is uh, you know, that the heart of the world is, is uh, process and change. Uh, and that's not the point. Uh, the point is in taking part in, in uh, changing the world. I think that's a good place to leave it, maybe. What do you think? Do you have anything else, Preston? Oh, of course, but I mean, I don't want to, we've been yeah. an hour and a half, well, we I don't want to take, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to make this into a two-parter and I don't want to <laughs> yeah, right. be, be, abuse Petra's time. So yeah. um, uh, thank you for uh, for speaking with us. It was a, it was a real pleasure. Um, is there anything else you want to add? You want to talk about what you're up to next or where people can find you? Anything that you want to let people know? I don't know. I'm writing a. I'm writing on a new book, and it will be on uh, trees, <laughs> partly, and uh, jelly jellyfish, because it seems that polyps and jellyfish actually uh, made a huge difference in the history of um, thought, history of ideas, and they played a more important part, I think, than people usually <laughs> realize. So it's all about materiality, but in a new way. In my next step. That sounds exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read some jellyfish theology. That'll be fun. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. I'm looking forward to reading, reading some uh, jellyfish theology. That'll be a first uh, yeah. for me. Have, have you seen there's a, um, a documentary about the octopus on Netflix? Yeah. Have you, did you see that person? Yeah, there. Wait, let me see if I can find the name of it. Yeah, it's called My Octopus Friend or something like that. Yeah, that's it. My Octopus Friend. Check it out. It's, it's, I think you would enjoy it. I will. I will. Yeah. yeah, I was so into polyps uh, last year, uh, reading about, you know, these odd little uh, jellyfish-like creatures. Uh, oh, anyway, we'll talk about that some other time. Thank you so much for taking an interest in my crazy theology. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking about jellyfish in a year or two. Oh, and, and trees. <laughs> if there are any trees left in a year or two, Yikes. climate change and all that. Good, yeah. good, good. Always end on a dark note. That's the way to yes. do it. Yes. <laughs> it's the Genesis and Apocalypse where Altharzarians went back again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Talk to you later. Yes. Bye. Bye. Have a good weekend. You as well. You too.
thanks again to Petra. Thanks to you for listening. We'll be back soon talking to Matt Valor, who's a friend of the show and I think a graduate student. I don't know. He's over in Cornwall anyway, working on semiotics of space. And there's sort of a alchemical or new materialist edge to that stuff as well. We'll learn more when we talk to him. Uh, intro music provided by Nikki Nine. Outro music, graphic, and sound design by Matt Baker. And we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.